Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF. I'm solo today and about to haul the mics out to Red's Java House to meet Bob Calhoun, a fellow history lover, fellow sourdough burger lover, and author of the new book, The Murders That Made Us, How Vigilantes, Hoodlums, Mob Bosses, Serial Killers, and Cult Leaders Built the San Francisco Bay Area. Incredible name, Bob. We don't have a lot of homicide content on this podcast. We're optimism people, your pandemic support group. But this isn't a traditional murder book. Bob's an old school Bay Area guy, and the crimes are just a jumping off point. He uses them to explore the city's history, what's changed radically, which myths are worth busting, and how crime can change a city's future. There are some, dare I say it, fun interludes today. Bob and I are going to talk about how the book started, when he casually found out that his mother was a murder suspect, and we'll cover my favorite topic, maybe ever, Furniture USA pitchman Ed Barbera and his sordid end. Shout out to Bob. After we were done, he noted that I didn't administer Heather Knight's lightning round, so we really have two endings today. I hooked the mics back up. Apologies if the audio is a little low. Order Bob Calhoun's book at your favorite indie bookstore. More information about his book at MurdersThatMadeUs.com. And Red's Java House is at RedsJavaHouse.com. Yes, they have a website. Heather Knight is back next week. Bob Calhoun coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Bob Calhoun, welcome to Total SF. Uh, Welcome to Red's Java House. We are in an iconic... San Francisco podcast recording location right now. It's it's like my second time eating out, like, <laughs> you know, not doing takeout, eating outside. I have not done indoor or outdoor dining through the whole of the pandemic. And uh, what better, there's no better place to, you know, resume dining out in San Francisco than Red's Java House. I mean, really, you know, as far as outdoor dining goes, I would only risk myself on indoor dining during the pandemic for the House of Prime Rib. That was the only <laughs> thing that made me think, maybe that's worth it. That might be worth the risk. And it's uh, now there's less risk, I hope, as we're all getting vaccinated. But no, it's great to be here. Great to have a burger on sourdough with fries and a beer and to just see the Embarcadero and be in the city. Yeah, know? I mean, it's, it's very much like Jurassic Park, like life finds a way. I mean, I came here and I thought this patio would be empty and... Um, for podcasting, that might have been a little bit better. We're here. There's like people here for a Giants game. It's it's I would say bustling in the back of Red's Java House, which is good to see. Yeah, it's more bustling now than the last time I was back here. You know, I think you know I was here during serious Giants off season last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the murders that made us is the book, and I'm super excited about this. I've been hearing about it for a couple of years now, and I've read your other books and always excited with what you're doing. You managed to kind of take wide interest subjects, national subjects, but have it a little bit localized, too, and it gets that kind of 
kind of locals flavor along with something that's going to resonate across the country. Yeah, I'm like a highly educated townie, which means I only have a bachelor's degree because a townie should have, should have maybe an AA at the most if you're a townie. So I'm, I don't have, a, I'm not claiming a master's degree in anything, but I'm a highly educated townie. I was born in San Francisco, but I uh, grew up on the peninsula in Redwood City and, and Menlo Park or the unincorporated district of Menlo Park, which is like this weird kind of place with no sidewalks. And uh, now a lot of Facebook people live there and Google engineers. But back then there was still the cars, uh, the Camaros up on blocks with the primer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've never left. And I think part of that is just sheer cowardice over weather in other parts of the country. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, yeah, moving to San Francisco was far enough for me. Where I lived, lived in in the city uh, throughout the, a lot of the '90s and into the 2000s. Yeah, well, shattering conventions, I think, is where we really connected. That was uh, your last book, correct? Yes, yeah. that was my last book. And I thought of you as someone who loved conventions, but also a journalist, a writer, inquisitive in a journalist kind of way. Even though I know you mostly for books. Tell me about where that started. Um, you're a Bay Area guy. You're a, a San Francisco guy or Daily City. and, and uh, Yeah. Well, now I'm San Leandro. I, I moved to the East Bay. <laughs> yeah. They finally finally chased me into, I, into the East Bay, you know, but uh, um, which is great because actually my little corner, of, I, I know I'm not answering the question right, right directly, but my little corner of the East Bay looks like the peninsula 35 years ago uh-huh. and even friends of mine from high school and stuff who've come out to visit me go that one part of Hesperian is just like you know they're like this is El Camino from 1983 <laughs> and so I'm like okay I'm home again I, I, I'm away but I'm home but um, yeah I don't really know where it comes from I mean um, my day job is as a researcher as well and it's just following these threads of these things these ideas or these people mm-hmm. incidents and following them you know, you know, you to the whole ball of yarn, taking that that one strand of yarn and following it through. So, yeah, you know, I mean, as far as shattering conventions, I went to creation cons as a kid and went to Star Trek conventions and those kinds of fan conventions. But I got interested in the idea of conventions like political conventions and gun shows and all these different trade shows and realized everybody has a convention and there's an industry behind it. I never had the budget that, you know, some kind of more national reporter or somebody who's had success, you know, writing articles for GQ would have. So I was kind of stuck going to a lot of things at the Cow Palace. But, Bob, that keeps you hungry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, and, uh, you know, and so, yeah, it's like, oh, the Republican convention was here in 1964, and now there's, like, a gun show and a weed show and and the Dickens Fair, which I didn't write about in that, but I, I covered it later. Yeah, I, I got to interlude here before we move on to, to your new crime book. Um, I think where, you know, we knew each other kind of, you know, especially when social media picked up, you know, we have similar interests. We're sort of in orbit of each other. And then one day I got a, a, a I think, a Twitter DM, like, but this was like eight or nine or ten years ago, telling me, like, kind of almost like this, this, um, blue Obi-Wan ghost type of voice saying, you know, if you look in your archive in the conventions in 19, I think it was 64, Mitt Romney was at the Republican convention at the Cow Palace, which to me, like, 
I know like there were Republican mayors way back in the day, but the idea that there was a Republican convention, I didn't even know that. And so that led to me, Bob, I'm, I'm making a Where's Waldo in our archive, <laughs> like, like looking on the floor under the Michigan banner trying to find Mitt Romney. And then I found Mitt Romney. I, what you did there was amazing. It's like that scene in High Anxiety where they blow up the picture to yeah. show that there's two Mel Brookses. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, this is like a reference only a few people, you know, people of a certain age will get that reference. But yeah, I'm like, oh man, he actually found it, you know. I thought best shot you would have would be there just happened to be a picture of of Gov- of Mitt's dad, you know, yeah. and his kids around. Because uh, his father was a prominent figure in Republican circles, uh, former oh, governor yeah. of Michigan, and always kind of touted as a kind of anti-Nixon or anti-Goldwater and never could quite make it. He was a little too honorable, really, you know. Yeah, well, well, that, I mean, it started out, by the way, these are little, these are four by five negatives. So Joe Rosenthal's shooting on a, on a monopod or a tripod, which means when you blow them up, you could blow it up and put it on your wall and see faces. I mean, it's very detailed, these old negatives. So I blew it up, blew it up, blew it up, and then found his face. And then later on found some more negatives with him sitting and watching his dad and with his dad. But I remember at the time I I, uh, tried to get a hold of him and he was running for president at the time, so he didn't want to talk to me. But I did get a hold of him last year finally and got him to talk about being there with his dad and everything and kind of the connections to, you know, standing up to to the extremists in the party. So I thank you for that, Bob. I I haven't done it on the record. I think I've done it uh, off the record. It, it, It was kind of, it kind of let people know whoever, you know, the people who read it, your readers, know what's being lost with digital i mean we're always kind of like oh we act like the equipment of the past or the art of the past or mediums of the past it's somehow more primitive and they aren't they were just the best at what they have but there's things that we lose we can't go into all that detail like you could just you could blow you could blow those pictures up as big as that the side of that building there the high dive and just post it there yeah so anyway we were talking about um about conventions and and that Romney incident, but that I, I bring it up in part to just you know that that's what I like about what you do. It's not just um, the finish line in your book; it's the journey and the murders that made us. Your new book, um, there are murders in it, but sometimes the murder is like a paragraph or two in the context of San Francisco and society and that person's life ends up being two or three pages and I was wondering you know what the what the kind of origin story is of this book and if that was your intention to tell the story of the city and not just of crimes um probably my my first story this way was actually uh I was remembering an incident that my mother was involved in in 1959 um I'm 52 now I'll just or I'll be 52 in June and I came along kind of late. You know, my parents were already, you know, middle-aged by the time I came into the picture. My sister is 11 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So people often don't think I should have parents that, you know, came here in the 40s. But that's, that's what happened. But, um, my, you know, there was, a, there was this guy, uh, August Nori. He was, a, he was kind of a handyman and a former minor league ball player and a, a dance instructor, kind of an Errol Flynn-looking type guy with a pencil-thin mustache, you know, maybe a Lothario, you know, local Lothario in Daly City and Crocker, Amazon. My parents lived in, in Crocker, Amazon, bordering Daly City in San Francisco on San Bruno Mountain at the time. And um, 
you know, it was a murder that my mom would talk about and the, the things that she would say about it, she was kind of muted. Like my mother, uh, Jackie Calhoun, she's, she's gone now, but she, she would like talk about a fight at the laundromat. Like my mom, like, mom, why don't we get you a washer dryer? And she would know I want to go to the laundromat. And the reason was, is she wanted to watch people fight over the washers and dryers. And then she wanted to tell me or my sister or whoever would listen about all the drama at the laundromat. She just, that's what she wanted to talk about the strife at the laundromat but for this murder she would talk about it but it was always more serious than her usual kind of gossipy tales and um she was gone before i like thought of asking her about it so i wanted to repiece it and i brought it up to my dad like hey dad there was this murder that you were involved in and uh my mom said that you know it was a friend of yours and everybody everybody in their little suburban circle was kind of a suspected each other of doing it like who could have killed him who could have killed august nori very so, desperate housewives yeah <laughs> yeah yeah except with kind of like a kind of scorsese the wives goodfellas thing with the bouffant hairdos <laughs> and you know uh old crow and sevens and sevens and sevens and things and uh my dad just said August Nori and like it went silent. We were we were having like lunch at um, a Peruvian restaurant on El Camino in Redwood City over by his house at the time. And he was just, you know, it was just and he said, you know, your mom was a suspect in that for that murder. <laughs> and he's like the um, the description was a blonde in, you know, a blonde woman uh, in her 20s. Because somebody saw her, you know, okay, back up a little bit. August Nori, it turns out, you know, he tells me all the details. He was shot um, 18 times on Mount, on San Bruno Mountain. They found his body, 18 shots. So it means with the revolver that the person who did it had to reload twice. They had a fully loaded gun, they had to reload twice. And so he, he tells me this, and he tells me my mom was a suspect, which I don't remember her saying that. But yeah, she matched the description of the woman they saw coming off the off the hill. And so that led me to write the story of my mother, the murder suspect. And I tried to sell that story. And I, I my this case was solved. I'm gonna leave it a little bit mysterious because it is like the you know, the first chapter after the introduction to the book. Yeah. So please buy the book at your favorite local bookstore. I'll say this. There were some photos in the Chronicle archive of her and um She's in the Hall of Justice. She's outside. It looked like she was, like, on vacation and having a good vacation. I mean, there wasn't a lot of terror in her eyes. So people read the book. You can read the rest there. But uh, fascinating character. A lot of fascinating characters in this book. Um, Did you find out about the city as you're finding out about these characters? Are you learning things about San Francisco history and things beyond the crime as you're researching? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, going from, like, the the hoodlum gangs and, you know, how the hoodlum gangs of, like, the 1870s, 1880s, it's because of railroads and, like, all these kids are displaced from their factory jobs because they're bringing in cheap goods from Ohio. Like, just that whole concept, and that's the rise of these kind of white hoodlum gangs and, you know, just over there, you know, in Tar Flats. I I did, I also wanted to, like, you know, the real estate agents now... And developers have all these, like, names like East Cut. And I'm like, let's just bring back the names from 1870 where it's, like, Tar Flats and Sludge Way and, you know, yeah. just all these, like, these kind of grim industrial names for these these neighborhoods. I think I think we're sitting 
pretty close to Sludgeway right now. The Mission Mission Bay was like nobody went there. Now it's like Chase Center and you know oh. Crane Cove Park. It's like the new cool place. Like that was where you dropped bodies off in San Francisco. I lived on Third and Bryant, Third and Brandon, um, in the nine throughout half the nineties. And I used to be able to park my car, the band van, over in gravel lots that are now, you know, Oracle Park. You know, and if I could just leave my car there. That's yeah. kind of why I moved there is I wouldn't get parking tickets. You know, there's nothing there. <laughs> I remember one of my first stories I did at the Examiner in 99 was to go cover this diner that was closing right around where Chase Center is now. It was called the Triangle. And you could go there and just get like a ham sandwich on white, you know, I mean, it was, it was that kind of place. And, and it was closing. And I just remember being there surrounded by railroad tracks and warehouses and, you know, long haul truckers were parked there. I can't tell you where it was. Like, I bike around there now. I cannot tell you where that sandwich place was. I have no context for that neighborhood. We'll be right back after this short break. But yeah, writing a story like oh, there's a lot of these stories. You, there's of course I, I cover you know Dan White, Milk Moscone, Jonestown, all the Zodiac. But there's just I was just I was fascinated to find like more obscure stories that have been forgotten about. Yeah. And and when I would do those stories, I could have a moment to to write about the neighborhood and what what whatever neighborhood it was in. Some of not all of them in San Francisco. I do cover other places outside of San Francisco and there's some stuff in Oakland and the South Bay and the peninsula, but mostly San Francisco. And it was just like, what was going on there in 1947? Yeah. What was, you know, the Excelsior like in 1951 or North beach like in 1945 and why, you know, why was it that way then? And why is it, how has it changed since then? And to put these things in their context and like characters like, you know, Jerry Brown or his dad Pat Brown like these kind of mayors Sonny Jim Rolfe they kind of just crop up over and over again <laughs> in it and it kind of gives a sense of continuity that that I'm glad if people think it's there but it wasn't really I'm not like oh I gotta make sure I have the maybe I'd pick it up later where I'm like yeah. oh this guy is like three chapters ago when he's mayor and now he's governor you know or he's DA now and now you know you know, the Hallinans crop up every now and again. I had, I had Sonny Jim Rolfe as, in my head, like a top five, maybe top three San Francisco mayor. After reading your book, I'm like, he had a real pro-vigilanteism. <laughs> well, he wasn't mayor of he, he may have dropped a few spots on my list. I know. It's funny because if you read, like, Herbert Ashbery's... Um, you know, I always call it Gangs of San Francisco because the book always says, oh, by the author of Gangs of New York, but it was Barbary Coast. Yeah. From the 30s, he's just really, like, he, he hates people like um, David Broderick. He yeah. hates Broderick, and he loves Sonny Jim Rolfe. Jim Rolfe cleaned up the city, but then I start reading about Jim Rolfe, and it's like, Sonny Jim, like, you know, he owned a brothel, and he was just shutting, <laughs> he's, it's like L.A. Confidential. He's just shutting down the competition, and... Then, yeah, he encourages in the San Jose lynching incident yeah. in 1933. He's the governor, and he encourages this them to, to do frontier, to bring back frontier justice. To be fair, in the early 1900s, everyone owned a brothel in San Francisco. but um, It's what you had to do. Yeah. So 
you know, you've got the Zodiac in here, you've got uh, uh, Jonestown, you know, a lot of the things that, that we're used to, but I find that on the subjects that we think we know about, you color outside the lines a little bit. We get a lot of Dan White after he's released from jail in his last moments of his life. And then I think probably the one where I learned the most, where I thought I knew the story, was Charles Sullivan. And could you just, I'm going to let you take it. Who was Charles Sullivan and what was his importance to the city? He was the owner of the Fillmore before it was like, before the like trippy psychedelic 60s Fillmore that, that we all know, that we just know from being in the Fillmore now and seeing the posters. If, if people have seen any show there, even if they're younger and they don't really care about the Grateful Dead, they, they know about it from being in that place. Yeah. And... Charles Sullivan was he was a he was an African American businessman, maybe somewhat of a criminal because he was big in liquor and and uh, juke boxes. Yeah, jukeboxes yeah. and things. There's kind of a mob thing going there, but um, he before you know he's his story is often told in the context of he's a guy who taught Bill Graham how to promote concerts, yeah. and that's true. But I I just didn't want to write him that way because. He's the one who was really doing the arena shows before almost anybody else was. Uh-huh. He was booking Ray Charles and James Brown at the Cow Palace. He was all the big acts were coming to his Fillmore, but this was um, un- unfortunately for him at a time when urban renewal and um, you know they were they were planning to tear down the Fillmore and already started tearing down the Victorians there, moving the African American community out of the Fillmore the way or Western Edition the way they had moved the Japanese community out for internment when it was mostly considered Japantown or Little Tokyo, and uh, so that you know part of the reason Graham happened is Sullivan sold the lease to him. Um, but yeah, Sullivan was murdered in 1966 out here in South of Market. Uh, he had reportedly had about $7,000 with him from a James Brown concert that he had promoted in Los Angeles. He was meeting up with somebody, probably got robbed and killed. You know, I mean, $7,000 is enough money to kill for now for some people in 1966. What is that? Like 30,000? 30, 40, 50,000. Yeah, 50,000. Yeah, it was a lot of money that he just had in a, in a valise in his yeah. car. Well, that was one of my favorites. Um, I learned a lot, and I, it's my favorite kind of story where I think I know, or there's sort of this myth, or things have been told enough times that you start to lose the context. And then I just hear all about this guy's life, who, like I said, I, I think I had known, maybe I had heard the name a couple times as someone who was there before... Uh, Bill Graham, and then Bill Graham innovated all this stuff, and there was a guy there before that. So that was great. Um, yeah, it's he's always a prologue to Graham. Yeah, and it's really uh, there are a few, you'll find profiles of him online that aren't. You know, yeah. there there were other writers that have found this too, but he, yeah, he really it's like I, I would start to research, you know, the SF Mime Troop show and these kind of you know seminal moments in Graham's life, and I just found myself like you know. The, I don't need to do this. There's enough other people doing this. So I, I get through this book, um, learning a lot, covering things I know, a lot of things that I didn't know, great meal, and then I get to the last third, and Bob Calhoun, you give me the best dessert I could have asked <laughs> for. I'm a child of KBHK, Channel 44, and Channel 2, and you have Ed Barbera, um, 
Furniture USA owner, a whole thing on him. Stephen Matthew David, get a bike. Matthew's Top of the Hill Daily City. You, you don't close out the book, but for me, it was the dessert of this book was was that you just doing deep dives on these TV characters from my childhood. That maybe there wasn't a murder involved, but there was something yeah. going on there. They were all as crooked as you would think they as you think they are or thought they were. And that that chapter in there, there's a whole chapter of hucksters where Ed Barbara, Furniture USA, and Stephen Matthew David, and Leon Heskett, the Carpet King, um, all of them are there. And that's kind of like you've just gone through Jonestown and, and the SLA and, and Milk and Moscone and Dan White and these depressing chapters. And I'm yeah. like, this is all kind of the 80s when this happens. It's right after that. I'm just going to, it's not a murder. And I do have people on Goodreads saying, they aren't all murders. It's like, yeah, you know, take a break. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a break from that before Richard Ramirez shows up later. Yeah, and the bodies and barrels and all this other terrible stuff. I think I needed a break putting it together. The reader must need a break. And these kind of more comical, farcical stories. And yeah, Ed Barbara. You know, he was this fast-talking kind of kind of husky guy, and he always appeared on these commercials for Furniture USA. Um, you know, it's a really obvious blue screen or green screen kind of him superimposed over Rose. Of, of of crappy dressers talking real fast. Hi you know, kids, you know. Hi kids, Ed Barbar. Yeah. I, I thought his name was Ed Barbar forever as a kid because I didn't realize <laughs> there. You know, Ed Barbar, Furniture USA. Yeah. You need credit. We can get you credit. You know, just and that was what he was selling was really terrible credit. Yeah, more than the furniture. And he had, um, he you know, as you would as you would expect, he had a scheme. Like on the pink sheets, he had put together a company and he had a mine in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. <laughs> and, you know, he had promised, like, with a letter from Melvin Belli, you know, Melvin Belli wrote a letter saying what a great investment opportunity this was. Uh-huh. And it turned out they had salted the mine. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's like a it's like a plot from Bonanza, except with, like, 70s, 80s sleazy dudes from Brooklyn that moved to San Jose <laughs> pulling it off. And there was a geologist who died mysteriously during that so there might have been a murder but he ended up um he ended up on the lamb and dying on the lamb he was he he was he was sentenced to 19 years in absentia because he lambed it because somebody in new mexico's justice system decided to put him out on bail while he waited sentencing worst bail decision (laughs) in new mexico history maybe the entire west so uh, I, I appreciated that. I'm glad you gave us that break. And I agree, there's like this heavy stuff going on. You know, I was alive during that time, you know, picked up a little bit of it as a kid. So appreciate you getting uh, Ed Barbara in there. Um, the murders that made us, um, what's it like? I mean, you're kind of coming to the end of the pandemic. What, what What's your book tour like in a situation like this? I just talked to... Uh, Aliyah Volts uh, about yeah. about Home Baked, which is our our uh, current um, book club book, and she was talking about the struggles of having that originally come out last year. What's it like for you now? I don't know. I'm in a holding pattern. Like bookstores, even after Publishers Weekly gave me a start reviewing things, bookstores haven't been knocking down my door to do like Zoom events. But honestly, I'm okay with that because I think well, maybe by June or July. You know, or even September, maybe I can like do a wave of bookstore events and do them in person or outside, unmasked. So I'm like, okay, I think I will be doing events. 
I'm planning on maybe even as early as next week, I don't know yet, of doing gorilla readings where I go to like Stewart and Market over here where the preparedness day bombing happened in 1915 uh, or 16. I have to read my, my own book. Yeah. Um, and just doing the readings of the little the little sections I have, chapters I have, uh, you know, at these notorious scenes. And maybe just telling people on Facebook and Twitter, like, hey, come on out. And, you know, there'll be people there. Five people will show up to have me sign the books they already got because it's shipping already. It's still a week ahead of, of release date, but people have the book already to either sign them or, or you know, just like do an outdoor gorilla reading. So, yeah, it is a weird time, you yeah. know, but I haven't been like bemoaning not having those bookings yet those bookstore bookings yet because I just think it's going to be better just around the corner or at least yeah. I hope it will yeah well uh, I always tell people go to your local indie bookstore you know order it there is that the right advice for this do you have a site what's the best way for people to get the book well you can go to murdersthatmadeus.com and that will give you to the usual uh, suspects as well as IndieBound which will let you you can order from them and you can choose which bookstore in your area that you want the sale to benefit uh, but every local bookstore every one i've encountered has will ship to you yeah so if you have a favorite lo local bookstore green apple alibi books in vallejo um all the printers are the book sync i mean not printers ink book sync sorry about that yeah. i'm going way too back into far in time um you know book sync alameda wherever you can you can order it there you could order it for pickup those, those indie bookstores will either send, send it to your home just like Amazon or they will let you pick it up and they need the business. And I'm so glad so many of them have survived. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, we've been really pushing that. I'm hoping what comes out of this is that people understand that the things they've been doing with Amazon, and I did it. I did my pre-orders with Amazon until a year ago that the local indie bookstores can do that. And those that couldn't do that over the pandemic have learned how to do it so i'm hoping you know people are thinking about pre uh, indie bookstores for pre-orders and i hope that's where they get the murders that made us and bob calhoun thank you for coming out to uh red's java house this is my first cheeseburger on sourdough with the mustard and <laughs> onion don't ask for lettuce and tomato there's a sign up at red's um really glad you get out here with me and uh, oh, yeah. talk about your book I'm glad the perfect location for it and a perfect day for it. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Congratulations. Bob Calhoun, I'm going to cop to it. We are coming back to do the lightning round. I forgot the lightning round. You had a little forlorn look on your face. I could <laughs> tell. Uh, wanted to get to this seminal part of the podcast. I just love the fact that you know that we have a lightning round. Most people who come on maybe don't listen to the podcast that deeply into it. So let's go favorite place to get a burrito what's your choice okay san francisco would be the cancun on mission and 18th the al pastor burrito with big hunks of avocado that's what i get uh east bay los pericos on east 14th in san leandro of has the best el pastor very very good uh south bay or san jose would be la victoria where i had one of my first dates with my wife Rosemary, oh, way back nice. when, Shout uh, out Rosemary. the orange sauce, and then the peninsula, which is always overlooked, it would be El Super Burrito in Millbrae. Oh hell yeah! Get I, the refried beans; they are the proper refried beans. I wish I wore it. I have an El Super Burrito T-shirt that my friend Adam gave me that um, I should have worn to this podcast. I'm wearing my Sticky Fingers shirt 
for uh, Aaliyah Volts. But uh, great picks, and I don't think we've ever had a San Leandro burrito place. No one has picked El Super Burrito. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Favorite San Francisco movie? I'm going to throw a curve here um, because it doesn't get mentioned enough, but Chan is missing. Oh, wow. That, that does not get mentioned. Tell me what you like about it. Why is that your pick? Well, the black and white, and it's like I hadn't seen it. Like, I remember Roger Ebert on At The Movies way back when uh-huh. talking about it when I wish they were just talking about, like, Dawn of the Dead or something <laughs> or, or Star Wars or whatever I was watching it for. But it's it, it gets to the city in San Francisco in a way a lot of movies don't, and it's these two two uh, Chinese-American cab drivers, and they're complaining about the tourists not tipping and stuff, and it just shows a slice of the city that you don't really see. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a white boy, you ask me, it's going to be Bullet, you know, if I'm really being honest, but I really think Chan is missing. I've watched it three times since I found it on Canopy, and um, it's really, it it should be in the San Francisco movie pantheon with Vertigo. Nice. And it's cool that the guys doing the investigating aren't cops. They're cabbies. I, I like a curveball like this. You know, enough people have picked Vertigo and Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, favorite place to get a stiff drink? I'm going to I'm gonna pick Edinburgh Castle because that's where my whole writing thing started doing kind of poetry type stuff and spoken word stuff there. And I don't know if it's going to continue or what form it'll be in or, you know, who will be there, you know. But I hope it, it comes back comes back from the brink so i'll pick edinburgh castle on geary first concert and also your first concert at the cow palace Ooh, first concert would be first concert ever and it's weird is uh dead kennedy's at the farm when i was about That's 14. A good one yeah i know and it probably ruined me that my first one was like that good we uh, my friend ruby she's kind of like my aunt yeah. Um, she was. She lived in the neighborhood. I'm uh, best friends with her son Zane. They live in Reno now. But what's funny is, you know, Ruby used to work at the Mabuhay, mm-hmm. and and you know, back in the day, so she knew East Bay Ray and Jello and all these all those people from that scene. She, my mom, would let her take us to these punk shows in the city because she was a parent. Yeah. That was that was the loophole, you know. So she would drive all of us up in her Toyota Corolla, and it's like it's a treasured memory. And we'd end up home at 3 a.m. because she'd have to go to the party at Bruno de Smartass of the Sluglord's house. But she was a parent, so it was okay. I was very fortunate to have that. All right, first Cow Palace. That's a hard one, but it's probably Ozzy in the late 80s. Ozzy in the late 80s. Or ACDC, you know, like kind of like... You know, like not the glory years of them, but the tail end of that stuff. Final question. What's something that you always try to fit into a busy day? Ooh, something I always try to fit into a busy day besides watching television. (laughs) Uh, Right now, it's uh, at least an hour of the Pluto Bob Barker Price is Right channel. Thank you, Bob Calhoun for coming to Red's Java House with me, getting that sourdough with the burger, mustard, and onion. Don't ask for tomato or lettuce. It's on a sign in there. And uh, I had a really good time. This worked out good, and congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, lettuce and tomato would just ruin it. There's a symmetry <laughs> to the Red's burger. Just just go with what they give you. Go where the ball is pitched, as Crooked Kipe would say. It's a very distinct burger, Red's Java House. Thanks again, Bob. Thank you.
You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to our guest, Bob Calhoun. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod.